to the town of Enniscorthy on Easter Sunday, 1916. The countermanding order brought confusion and bitter disappointment, as it did to every part of Ireland where the rising was made ready. But early on the following Thursday, Enniscorthy did rise. The volunteers held the town until Sunday night, when on Pierce's direct order, they agreed to lay down their arms. Those are the bones of the story. But for the flesh and blood of it, the heart and mind and memory of it, we must listen to the men of Enniscorthy themselves. Well, my grandfather, James Tompkins, was a Fenian and he was he was ready with his Schneider for take part in the 67 Rising. <clears throat> my mother, she could sing a song fairly good and she sang all Irish songs and often told me she was very proud of her father. That was Jack Whelan. His fellow volunteer, Jack Breen, remembers his school days and an old Christian brother, Mr Norris. He used to come around occasionally when he had retired and take five or six of us down to the end of the school, away from the rest of the pupils, and lecture us on nationality, Battle of Vinegar Hill, and uh, fighting in 98, and uh, what the people went through and all that. We were very fond of Vinegar Hill. I think everyone from the town of Enniscorthy remembers the old hill, no matter where they go. And we often went up there, I remember well, the place that we used to call the Croppy's Grave. And we used to think at least that the ground was spongy under our feet there. Small wonder that so many of the young men of Enniscorthy joined the Gaelic League. August, we could my shandin a lesh. We didn't own to go on. Eh, the blackham, we should see on an old road. We should go over in Machala. Enniscorthy Echo. T.D.O. Shinod. Far more Gaelic lesh. Shemus Machinrachtery. Uh, a four boss in the ocean, Shosaboshinoi, the August Dina Marid. August Arno, near a vein, Krivne, a rain, Gaelica Duchish, Sakanthor Sanaum. Ah, Nirev, Nirev, Octavana Dina Hanigis Chachon, a Munagelgen on Munish Gulle. That was Michal O'Kirawine. Another young fellow, Michal Makyochi, could never understand why a hall which bore the sign Gaelic Athletic Association was frequented by a number of elderly men. We often laughed amongst ourselves as unthinking youngsters about those old grey-haired and bald-headed uh, athletes, how they can't be connected with the association, to be regarded as members of the Gaelic Athletic Association. But of course, uh, in later days, we really discovered uh, the reason. George Teagan of Enniscarthy, who had been a Fenian, closely identified, like many members of the Keegan family with the National Association, national activities all down the years, uh, was Wexford's first member of the GA, representing GA and County Wexford, rather, on the Gaelic Athletic Association. And he attended the famous Congress in Thurlis, which had been described as the Fenian Congress. Now, those men who had been early associated with the Gaelic Athletic Association still uh, 
resorted to and had a meeting place of their own in the this building which came afterwards to be known uh, as Antwerp. On a night when the Slaney flooded high, one wet conspirator who had been reading his news of the war in Belgium said, sure we might as well be in Antwerp. And Antwerp remained the name. It was a place where the right hand was not always aware what the left hand was doing exactly. Sooner or later, most of the young brotherhood of O'Growney students and hurlers became members of the older brotherhood. Dennis O'Brien recalls, I was in the IRB about 1910 or 1911. You were a very young fellow then. I was 26. And there was great activity uh, organising the IRB. And we had a number of cycles in Inniscarty. Nearly everybody, nearly everybody, every young fella, uh, that was tasked likely to join was canvassed. And a lot did join. Now, there were many roads into the movement. How did you come in, Paddy Pierce? When there was a very young boy, I went to work in the Aco printing works at the age of 13 years. And it wasn't very long there when I discovered that there was a great national spirit in the place and that all, most of the members were involved in the, or members of the IRB at that time. And uh, we had already uh, formed a branch of the Nafi and Ern. For some years, Fianna boys from Dublin had been coming down regularly to camp on Vinegar Hill. Example was better than precept. The Enniscorthy Echo, by the way, did indeed play a very important part in the prehistory of 1916. As Bill Quirk says, Which was more or less the headquarters of the national movement at the time. Or was Antwerp the HQ? Or the house of that dedicated family, the Keegans, where 98 and 67 lived into 16 and beyond. They all played their part and joined with enthusiasm in the founding of the Irish Volunteers, which Seamus O'Doul recalls. We were founded here on the last Sunday in December 1913. Uh, O'Reilly and MJ Judge addressed the meeting and Thomas Hayes, who was then who was then chairman of the Enniscorthy Board of Guardians presided at the meeting. A lot of people handed in their names, a lot of young men that day. They had a company based on Mary Street. There was a company in the Shannon, and there was a, a fragment of companies in John Street and in Irish Street. Of course, we organised the, the country places as well. Well, now, were, were these companies, in theory at least, belonging to a larger brigade, to a Wexford brigade? Or oh, yes. 
As a matter of fact, I was adjutant of the Wakeford Brigade, and P.P. Uh, P. Galligan was brigade vice commandant. We hadn't ever a brigade strength, but we believed that an initial success would have augmented our ranks, and that we would have had a brigade. Now, was the split between uh, was the, uh, the, the 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 Redmondite split? Did this did this affect you much uh, in Wexford generally and here? Oh well, they had more than we had. In Enniscorthy or in Wexford in general? And uh, over the county in general. It uh, was about 4,000, I think, before the split. I think that was the full strength of the volunteers before the split, but after it, I don't know how many remained with the original provisional council. Did the split cause a great break among friends? It did at first. It did at first. It had a very serious break and there was a bit of hostility existed between the two groups. And now, then at the date of the actual raising, I'd say most of them turned out with us. Pikes and guns, says the ballad man, were dangerous toys, but they could be useful. And since guns were scarce, Pierce called for pikes. And where would this call be answered if not in the town by Vinegar Hill? Jim Cleary got to work. He had just set up as a blacksmith. There were very good business in the time, shoeing horses. Well, I had anything I'd done, I had to do it on the quite. You seen the pike? Well, they were welded between the hook and between the socket. But what I did, I made all the sockets. I could make them all the time in the day, and nobody knew what they were. In fact, there were a man asked me one time, a very loyalist. Nearly all my customers were loyalists, you know. <laughs> there weren't many farmers <laughs> at the time, big ones anyway, <laughs> but was loyal. <laughs> and uh, he asked me what they were, and I told him they were sockets for slash hooks. <laughs> but... Uh, I had a couple of good men, the best. Uh, Fairly Murphy and Jack Chart. One of them would go, there's an archway going up to it before you go. One of them would go down to the bottom and stop on guard and myself and the other fellow start making the, making the blade and welding up the soccer to him. Night after night. Some nights nearly all night. <laughs> Well, eventually, anyway, apart from making pipes, we start making molds. Making molds for making buckshot. And uh, you wouldn't make any great noise making, making the buckshot. Well, we worked very often all night at that. And we worked beyond Nantrop at the same job. And worked all night and went to 7 o'clock most of a Sunday morning. When you were making the, the pike itself, how did you know about the shape of a pike and the making of a pike? Well, I saw 298 pikes with a man named James Thompsons. Lived near Ballycarney. I came back with the idea in my head. 
Well, the pikes you made were certainly as good, I suppose, were they, as the, as the old ones? As the, as the 98 ones. I think they were better. They wouldn't break, anyway. They were the best of steel in them. Well, now, that time, the steel was there for, for springs, for ordinary cars. You wouldn't weld spring steel to go in motor cars, you know. Not in a fire, anyway. Well, was there any suspicion of the work you were doing, or did people know what you were at at all? Not the slightest. Because we had a, a real good crowd. They were all dead, dead too. The working party was a great party. But what, what did she talk about those evenings? Originally. Yeah. Well, you were not known <coughs> only rebel songs and... and, and uh, anybody that looked for a song that was one would one with blood and murder in it. <laughs> what were the songs they sang? Oh, <coughs> every rebel song that ever ever was uh, printed, I think. Father Murphy and John Kelly Kellan and all such down along. Robert Emmett and Michael Dwyer and. <laughs> All the rest of them. How much of this was just young men looking for something to do, and how much of it was more than that? There was none of it looking for something to do because Pat Keegan instilled it into you night and day of what you were fighting for. He told you why you were making those things, and he never tired telling you. And what did he say? He told you, told us of. Oh, he told us of all the atrocities of 98 and all that kind of thing. There were many jobs to be done and many jobs were done. Phil Murphy was in the post office. As well as being a rural postman, I used to have to do indoor duty as well. But I wasn't paid for the indoor duty. I was doing that now for the love and honour. At that time, then, they say I had a certain amount of freedom that the ordinary man wouldn't have. I could go up to the telegraph room and get these code messages, do you see, bring them out. And the last transaction that I had was regards to a code message. I couldn't get this code message this day. And I knew it was in the Dublin bag, of course. The, the messages always go in what they call brown envelope, the accounts. And I thought to myself that, well, if I could manage it at all, I guess, out of the way. Well, I happened on the late Senator Kew. And I said to him, will you come over to the old station before the goods go out? I want to do a bit of a job. Of course I will, sir. So I took an extra lead seal. That time we were using leads, but prior to that you'd be having season wax. And a steam went over to the station, took out the, the Dublin bag, brought it into the waiting room, opened it, and we two candles, and I was afraid of my life to let the candle grace drop on the old message. <laughs> All the fat would be in the fire, of course. But no, we escaped well. Pierce was a frequent visitor to Enniscorthy in those days, but two visits above all stand out especially in Michal McCoke's memory. I can vividly recall his uh, reviewing of the 
County Wexford Irish Volunteers in the barley field on the Neat Vinegar Hill in October 1915. Again, on the 7th of March 1916, he gave a wonderful oration at the Robert, Robert Emmett commemoration concert in Enniscorthy. And I can well recall on that occasion his words to a packed hall where he referred to the blood of Emmet trickling down the gullies. He also said, a blood sacrifice may be necessary again for Ireland so that she may take her place amongst the nations of the earth. Michal McKeoghe was then in command of the Fianna Boys and at a volunteer meeting on Spy Wednesday night, he knew that something was going to happen very soon. I can well recall a man named Jim Jordan, a carpenter and a very loyal member of the Irish Volunteers. He hailed from the Duffery country, from Monbeg, Ballandagan, putting a question. Well, boys, he said out loud, if the day comes, are we all willing to strike? And of course, he was greeted with cheers. Seamus O'Doyle was in Dublin on Good Friday, and he knew that all was ready. There's a kind of John McDermott, nothing serious here. Don't tell them to go back and trade, I'm going to go down with Mike Neal, teaching them. They don't know why they should trade. They shouldn't trade. I guess, you know, honey, so well, I think in two, I guess, no, Vian and Manamana go hard. Vian Manamana go hard. The spirit was high. But it was cruelly wounded on Sunday. Canon Pat Murphy, a pioneer of insurgents from the beginning, remembers. I was on the bridge of Enniscorthy, and uh, the volunteers were down in a place called Ant Antwerp, ready to go out. And uh, uh, many of the townspeople came along and they saw the volunteers and said, no, what, what are those fellows doing down there? I said they were ready for a route march. <laughs> ready for a route march. And uh, then, about two o'clock, we already knew from uh, the newspaper, I think, uh, that uh, the old Maggie had countermanded the rising. But anyhow, uh, from Dublin came Minrine, and she never missed Mulcahy. And uh, they, they gave us uh, the countermand. So we had a council of war at which five or six assembled uh, in Mill Park Road and we decided not to go out. There was confusion and disappointment. Ginger O'Connell was to have taken command of the action in Wexford and the neighbouring counties. But after much consultation, he had to advise the Enniscorthy men that if they went out they would go out alone. And this is what eventually they decided to do. From Easter Monday, arms had been brought in, uh, arms from the Hoth gun running had been brought in from Gorey. And on Wednesday night, the final decision was taken by the officers. On Thursday morning, the men were called out. We were called about three o'clock on that Thursday morning, before daylight appeared on the sky and uh, 
in the street where I lived, there was about 13 of us, the most, the most active members. We were the first group to be called and to be armed. In fact, that was all the rifles that we had in that area. And uh, they were hid in the mission house, in the gardens of the mission house in the Shannon. And we went down there and we were given a rifle each. And we formed up then in the Shannon and we marched down and across the bridge and to Wary Street first, to this Keegan's, this famous Keegan's place. And we proceeded from there over to the Athenaeum, which was already occupied by Seamus Dial and by the headquarters staff, you know. I think it was Seamus Dial that put me on the head of Castle Hill for the fire at the barracks. There was a policeman there firing, you see. So I fired some shots. He was in the barrack door, you see, and he was sniping and was coming very close to. He was firing at the car, he was hitting the corner of the wall, firing a little to his right, I think. But two men then, Mick Cal, I think, and Jack Balf, went up around to the back of Bennett's hotel and they took a pot at him from there and somehow or other there was a piece of the brick knocked out of the corner of the wall where he was and he abandoned that post very quickly. And the next place he fired from was the top window, firing still up at Castle Hill. It stopped after some time and we learned that he had been wounded in the knee. He was Constable Grace. The thing was, he was the only one in the barracks apparently that wanted to do any shooting. There was no more shooting then. Brief as the exchange of fire was, its meaning came through loud and clear. Enniscorthy Castle was occupied with the goodwill of the owner, and then a moment of glory, which Greta Comerford, Danny Gouil, recalls for common man and the women of Wexford. Mrs. Uh, Bob Brennan and Marion Stokes and myself came together and pulled the cards that raised the flag on high. And there was a great cheer all over the town when we saw the flag flying. The town as a whole was cooperative, or at the worst, not uncooperative. The public houses were closed, the gas supply was by order of volunteer headquarters kept in service. There was a pass system for those entering and leaving. Dennis O'Brien was in charge of transport. Uh, uh, most of the cars, of course, were commandeered. Well, they were nearly all commandeered. I don't think any of us had a car. No, I don't think any of us had a car. But there were some of the lads, the, the drivers were in the volunteers, say some of them. 
volunteer headquarters sent scouts around the outlying parishes and villages. All was quiet. One village, one ancient city, had already answered Enniscorthy's summons. Paddy Ronan of Ferns remembers. We left Ferns on uh, Tuesday morning about 10 o'clock and uh, we marched to on towards Enniscorthy and beyond Scarawinch we met another dispatcher that said we weren't to go into the town. So uh, we uh, stayed in Ballinahan Wood all day and it was raining all day. I know it was a fair day in Enniscorthy as well. But we stayed there all day until night and got nothing to eat either, but whoever. Uh, that night some of our fellows went into Enniscarthy anyhow and we were told to, to disperse and go home. That annoyed us very much. But however, we went home anyhow and we said we wouldn't go anymore until we were definite that there was uh, a rising was going to take place. So on uh, Thursday we were got a dispatch from Enniscarthy that they had taken over Enniscarthy and we were to go in. So then on Thursday evening we mobilised and we went in. There was about 50 of us went in. And a few others who weren't available at the time came in afterwards. So we stayed in Enniscarthy and did the usual work that was to be done in Enniscarthy with regard to an insurrection. And on Friday there was word that came into Enniscarthy that there were soldiers seen between Ferdinand and Camol. So it was decided on here to take over Ferdinand as an outpost. So um, a good many Ferdinand's fellows in the large portion of Enniscarthy fellows came back to Ferdinand's and we took over the RIC back there. The RIC had gone by the time we came back. They were there and we were going, but they had gone by this time, they went on to Gory. And we took over the barrack in Ferdinand's our headquarters and John Murphy was in command there. Early on Sunday morning, the Ferns men allowed a car with RIC men protected by a priest and a white flag through to Enniscorthy. But the end had already begun. Pierce's surrender order had earlier been communicated to Enniscorthy headquarters. But the command refused to accept it unless their representatives heard it from Pierce's own lips. This was agreed to. O'Doyle and Sean Etchingham were given military transport under guard with a safe conduct to Dublin. We arrived at the British headquarters, I think it was the Kingsbridge station, and they sent us from, they brought us from there to Arbor Hill, accompanied by two or three loads of officers. We went and into the prison and uh, went into the cell in which Pierce was. He was lying on a mattress, a biscuit mattress, just the mattress that's laid down flat, you know, that troubles up. And uh, he came forward to meet us. So he seemed to be very tired but he, he spiritually exalted and uh, he wrote the order for us to lay down our arms. And while the Tommy was out in the corridor in the prison showing it to the officers for their okay, Pierce whispered to us to hide your arms. He said they will be needed later and we bade him farewell.
came away. Jack Breen remembers O'Doyle's return to Enniscorthy. Seamus got up in the Atnam rink and he made a bit of a speech. As a matter of fact, he was crying. And he told us that we'd have to disband the headquarters staff and have to surrender to the military. And he said that Pierce had told him that they had to surrender in Dublin to save the populace. He said he saw British soldiers shooting down women in the streets of Dublin. Women and children, I think. And Seamus swore that we'd have revenge for that sometime. Father Pat Murphy had a word to say. I told the fellas to hand over a few of the shotguns that were seized in the shops. We keep the rifles. So they did keep the rifles, and they were brought out the country, uh, out the country, and they were safe for another day. <laughs> we'll leave the last word with Jim Cleary, the pipe maker. Oh, I knew that it wasn't going to be finished like that. And I never knew rightly till I went to Frondock. I think that's where the British were well foods, they organised us. Got it all together from every county. <laughs>